From Hyde Park United Methodist in Tampa, Florida, this is the Bible Project 2020, a journey to reading the Bible without fear or frustration. I'm your host, Matt Hotho. On this week's episode, Nikki Taylor and I sit down with Ryan Bonfiglio, Assistant Professor of Old Testament at Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Ryan was one of my professors in seminary. He taught me biblical Hebrew, which I have subsequently forgotten. Besides being a professor in the classroom, he heads the Public Theological Education Program, an initiative out of Candler that works to bring the best of the seminary experience into the local church. Ryan is an excellent scholar and teacher, and I'm so glad that he is on this episode with us. In this episode, we discuss the conclusion of Deuteronomy and the Pentateuch. Moses dies without entering the land, and we reflect on what this tragic ending would have meant for the Israelites reading the text. Joshua brings the people into the land, and with that conquest comes the issue of violence associated with the command to utterly destroy the cities in the promised land. We touch on these two topics and more in this episode. Our readings in Deuteronomy this week begin with, you guessed it, More Laws, chapter 21 through 25. Bloodshed and bad economic practices will lead to expulsion from the land. So Moses warns the people against these practices. Moses sets before the people blessings and curses, chapters 26 through 28, and they affirm their acceptance of the covenant in a ceremony atop two mountains. Moses gives one final sermon, chapters 29 through 30, before singing a summation of the Torah, chapter 32, blessing the people one last time, chapter 33, and then dying, chapter 34. The story of Joshua picks up right after Moses' death, and the people enter the land with the help of Rahab, a Canaanite woman, chapter 2. The Israelites enter the land in dramatic fashion with a reenactment of the Red Sea crossing, chapter 4, and then go about conquering the land, chapters 5 through 12. Chapter 13 seemingly contradicts the first 12 chapters of Joshua, suggesting that the conquest was not a total annihilation of the Canaanites. Nevertheless, the land is divided among the tribes, chapters 13 through 22. This mention of an incomplete conquest sets the stage for the conflict that arises in Judges. We're just going to hop right into this, Ryan. So glad you're here with us. Um, So we're in... Deuteronomy, kind of the latter half of it. And we've got this, this notion of land coming up throughout Deuteronomy and Joshua, um, almost as if the land can do things. I mean, you know, the, the warning is the land will spit you out if you don't do Mm -hmm. the right things, right. Or don't shed blood in the land. Blood has something to do with the land. How is the land functioning in, in this, in this part of the text, uh, Ryan? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, the land looms so large, and really in all of the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible, the land is always there. Mm-hmm. It's there in the promise that comes all the way back to Genesis 12, where Abraham is first commissioned, and he's promised that his descendants will be this great people, a numerous people, and will have a land to themselves. So it's there really in the DNA of Israel going way back to that encounter with Abraham. Mm -hmm. But the land is also this very elusive promise all throughout uh, the Pentateuch, right? They're they're, they're moving towards the land, but they never really get there. They get stuck in in Egypt for Mm -hmm. years and years and years, and they wander in the wilderness. And then even the really weird thing about Deuteronomy is that it ends with the land still being far off, that they're actually not there. So it's both part of their DNA 
but it's also in, in their history in their past but it's also part of their future it's this mm-hmm. longing this thing that still is is not quite there for them yeah this thing that they really desperately want uh and once they have it they desperately don't want to lose it that's right and in that sense the land also is to change metaphors it's kind of a barometer Mm. of faithfulness Mm. i mean there's this sense in which israel's obedience is tied to their ability to be in this certain place and you referenced earlier matt this idea that the land will spit them out that's kind of a way in which the land participates in their in their faithful life or their unfaithful life that is that the land literally rejects people uh, whose commitment is not fully for the Lord. And so it's an interesting kind of covenant partner, if you will, uh, in this whole drama between God and the people. And so when you then kind of think about the history of the people, right, they're going to eventually lose this land. Like we That's know right. that, uh, you know, in 722, the Northern kingdom is going to fall to the Assyrians. And then in 586, they're going to, the rest of the Israelites are going to be exiled to Babylon. Um, and, and we, we know that as historians mm-hmm. kind of knowing that that happened, but it feels like that's operating in the subtext here. Mm-hmm. It feels like mm-hmm. the author is aware that this either at least the Northern exile has happened, if not the Southern exile. Can you talk about that a little bit from the historical standpoint and then kind of what you think is going on in this text with the exile? Yeah, sure. So one of the the tricky things I think that, that we always need to keep in mind when working our way through the Old Testament in particular is that the story world, the reality of the people in the text mm-hmm. is not the same thing as the reality or the story of those who receive the text. So we have stuff here in Deuteronomy going on, and it's Moses and the Israelites, and they're wandering the wilderness, they're getting out of Egypt, all that sort of thing. But the people who first read and receive this text, most scholars think that, that they would have been doing so either right before the exile, so they're kind of on mm-hmm. the verge of collapse as a nation, Or maybe even they're receiving this text while they're already in exile. They already had been deported to Babylonia. And then they're receiving these stories. So for, you know, in in Deuteronomy 32, for instance, where you have this list of curses and blessings about obedience and how it relates to being in the land, in the story, that's a forward-looking warning about here's how you ought to be Mm -hmm. in the land. But from the perspective of of people who are in in the exile, it's almost as if that's a theodicy. In other words, it's an explanation of why yeah. they're no longer in the land. So really different, the same blessings and curses, but depending on what social context and historical reality you read it from, it, they can function really differently. I think you're absolutely right, Ryan. It seems like throughout Deuteronomy 28, chapter 28, chapter 30, there's just this, the exile is almost hanging in the background. Yeah. I mean, just like right there. Right at the start of chapter 30. Now, once all these things happen to you, the blessings and the curses that I'm setting before you, you must call them to mind as you sit among the various nations where the Lord your God has driven you. What? Like yeah. mm-hmm. God, the idea of God driving them out almost seems like it's it's saying, oh, well, you know, we're going to, these, these nations, we've driven you out of Egypt in some ways, but mm-hmm. it's almost like you're hearing the exile back there. And people who read that would be like, oh yeah, these are the blessings and curses that we need to make sure we follow now that, or else, you know, it's yeah. going to happen just like it happened for the exile. Yeah, that's such a great example of it because in moments like that, you hear the narrator's voice yes. enter the story. Yes. And, I, and what's so challenging, that, that what's so hard about being 21st century folks <laughs> reading these ancient texts is that it, it, that's a hard thing to understand. But I think in Israelite in exile, 
they hear that verse and they know exactly what that means. Mm -hmm. They know there that the text is addressing them in their reality. And it's such a, I think it would have been so obvious for an original reader, but it's because of the gap between us and the text and us and the people, it's it's hard. It can be hard to pick up on little moments like that. Okay, so we're going to shift gears to the death of Moses. So mm, yeah. we've got we get to the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Moses kind of does all his blessings. Uh, oh, and his death is foreshadowed a number of times. Yes, um, but then he just dies. <laughs> so you said earlier that like that's a surprising end. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because. Um, it is it is surprising. I mean, you know, just that the hero dies right at the end of it before mm-hmm. it's before the story is even fulfilled. We don't know the ending at this point other than he's dead and they're not in the land. <laughs> yeah, it's like the worst Hollywood script ever, right? The hero right. of the story, yeah. the person who's gotten all of the Academy Awards and all of the attention for, you know, 80 percent of the Pentateuch just dies like the, the person you thought for sure was going to lead the people triumphantly into the land promised to them. He doesn't, he doesn't get there. He dies at on Mount Pisgah, actually in, in this painfully tantalizing way, Mount Pisgah is just on the Eastern border mm-hmm. of the, the promised land. So literally he can see the land right. ahead of him. It's right there and he doesn't make it. And further, it, there's this weird note at the very end of Deuteronomy that says, no one knows where Moses was buried. So this iconic yeah. figure kind of dissolves in mm-hmm. a certain way into the story. And it, it could be seen at a certain level as a very disappointing or anticlimactic ending to this broader narrative. But I think there's really an important message, I think, an important theology that goes with it. On the one hand, um, I think what it, what it underscores is that no leader on his or her own is sufficient. Other leaders, leaders are always needed. Mm-hmm. We have to avoid a certain sort of ancestor worship or this idea that these great figures of the church are there to save it. The future of the church and the future of the people of Israel we're, are going to hinge on the next generation mm-hmm. and the leaders that will emerge after Moses, be it Joshua or others. It's, it's really on their shoulders to bring the people this next step forward into the land. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, I think what it what it also underscores is that it's the promise of the land, not the possession of it, mm-hmm. that constitutes the fundamental element of Israel's faith. It is possible to belong to the people of Israel, according to the Pentateuch, without living in the land of promise. And think about how important of a message that would be again, to the people who read this text in exile. Mm-hmm. If land was integral to being a people of God, the people in exile would face a major problem. I think the yeah. ending of, the, of, of, the, of Deuteronomy is for the exiles and says, look, these people also weren't in the land and they were God's people too, mm-hmm. just as you are. So I think it's, it's really important, actually. It actually makes sense for this book to end this way, even though it seems surprising at first glance. Yeah. Right. Like they thought their story was over. Yeah. But it was just beginning. Yeah. Right. And Israel's been here before. This is not the first time Israel has been separated from the land. Uh, And it's not going to be the last time either. And so this drama continues to play out uh, in both hopeful and devastating ways for this people through history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's like, that's just, causing all these thoughts right now because you're right. I mean, the Shema mentions nothing about land. No, like the, the watchword right. of the Jewish people is simply that God is one yes. and that you need to love. Yeah. 
That is, yeah. that's really interesting. I'd never considered that. Mm-hmm. That even yeah. though the land plays such a role, the land is not the the goal. Mm-hmm. It's it's yeah. the obedience. Yes. And it, just think about what a comfort that would have to be if you're our people living in exile to say, Moses, the big guy, the hero of our yeah. faith, he didn't make it to the land either. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, that's right. you know, to me, just thinking about the audience and the context, that really changes the view of it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that this isn't, you know, this actually does make sense in the ending mm-hmm. of the story. Mm-hmm. And, and it orients their faith towards this, towards promise and a promise that in many ways uh, is still to come. It still awaits us, right? So there's a deep hopefulness in the theology of the Pentateuch and I, I think in the theology of the, of the people. And that's different than optimism, right? I mean, mm-hmm. hope and optimism are not exactly the same thing. I don't think there was much reason to be optimistic. In the exile, I don't think there was much reason to be optimistic as you wandered through the wilderness, but there was this res- this this resolute hope mm-hmm. that God would someday fulfill this promise, even if we aren't around to see it. That the mm-hmm. promise is yet to come, and God is reliable in delivering that promise. So we get into Joshua, Ryan, and we got this um, this next generation that's in the land, and you had pointed out that there was something really interesting that happens in chapter four with 12 stones and the idea of memory. Can you talk about that and kind of why you think that matters? Yeah, there's this great moment in Joshua 3 and 4 where the people are really first poised collectively to cross over the Jordan, which is essentially the geographical and symbolic barrier or Mm -hmm. border into the land of promise. And they don't just rush across, right? Right, right. What happens is, and there's no land bridge there or underpass or overpass. So, uh, the, the first amazing thing that happens is that there's a repetition of God parting waters mm-hmm. to to deliver his people. You know that story going back to Exodus 14 where God parts the waters of the Red Sea so the people can cross to flee from the Egyptians. Well, here in Joshua 3 and 4, almost identical language is used. God heaps up the waters of the Jordan. He parts the waters, if you will, so that the Israelites could once again cross through on dry land to receive this promise that God had for them. But in the process of doing so, the priests go in and the priests, the the 12 representative priests take up stones from the dry riverbed and they place them on the West side, on the promised land side Mm. of the river. And understandably the people say at one point, well, why are you doing this? What's, what's the point of these stones? And the text gives us the answer. It says, when your children ask in time to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off in front of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the Israelites a memorial forever. And I think that's really a beautiful idea. These Mm -hmm. stones are kind of representing this moment, this miracle where God has delivered them into this land. They point backwards to the miracle of the crossing of the Red Sea as the Israelites had left Egypt. But here they're a reminder of God's present promise to deliver them into this land. And it also makes me think that their positioning really matters too. Because if the Israelites, once they're in the land, if they were fearful or doubtful that this really was God's will for them to be there, and they wanted to hightail it back to the wilderness or back Mm -hmm. to Egypt, on their way out, they would have had to pass that monument. Uh, And so I think in a number of ways, the monument was supposed to be there as a warning 
to say, remember what God has done. Remember the miracles that delivered you here. Don't leave. Stay. This is a God whose promises can be trusted. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And I love that because as we see in um, other books in the Old Testament, the Israelite people complain and talk about going back to Egypt a lot. (laughs) They do all the time. That's right. And so we can think in our common sense, like they're in the promised land. Like, why would they ever, ever doubt it? Why would they ever try to turn back? I mean, just go a couple chapters back. Mm -hmm. You know, you can see like they have a tendency to do that. Yeah. (laughs) No, there's like there's this way in which, you know, it was a lot easier to get the Israelites out of Egypt than it was to get Egypt out of the Israelites. Right. Mm -hmm. They they, kind of has this magnetic pull on them and not because life was great in Egypt. But it, it almost seems as if the the familiarity of oppression in Egypt at times is preferable for the Israelites than yeah. the uncertainty of freedom in the wilderness. Mm. And I actually think that that relates to, to Christian discipleship a lot as yeah. well, that we, we struggle with those tensions of the uncertainty of freedom. Um, and it's almost as if the, the certainty of oppression is, is, is better mm-hmm. or, or it somehow fits for us mm-hmm. in different ways. Yeah, we want the rules, we want the the guidelines yeah. and the regulations. We want it all to be handed to us. Mm-hmm. We don't yeah. want to have to figure it out for ourselves and wrestle with it. Yeah, that's right. In fact, even we if see the that, rules aren't good for us, and so, or even if the you know our former condition wasn't uh, wasn't one in which we flourished in, it's still there's still something attractive about it. Yeah, yeah, you run into that all the time in Bible study. So you come across <laughs> Christians sometimes who believe things that are terribly oppressive, and you look at them and go, but there's a freer way to read these scriptures. Mm -hmm. There's a more liberating way to read this, not liberal, but just liberating Mm -hmm. a way to, a way to read it in a way that is life giving and not oppressing. And when you tell them that they go, but wait, I'm going to have to let go of all this other stuff. I'm Mm -hmm. like, well, yeah, yeah, but there's something on the other side of it. That's better. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that's right. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Can you relate to that in your work with the lady that you do at, uh, in, in Atlanta, you don't have to call anybody out, but you know, do you see that in your work in the local community? Well, though, I mean, I really do. I, what I so often happens is I, I get really sweet, faithful people come up to me and say, look, I've been going to Sunday school for 30 straight years, 40 straight years, 50 straight years, whatever it is. How is it that I never knew this before? Mm, yeah. You know, how did I not know kind of these big picture questions, really some of the stuff that you all are doing right here through these podcasts and through this this year long study of the Bible. Like people have have had a bunch of these little individual lessons and they've missed kind of the connecting parts. Mm-hmm. And so in those moments, you know, like there, there, there are these incredibly eye opening moments, which is really beautiful and transformative. But with having eyes opened, it's, there is something new to see. And that, that can be unsettling in certain ways. I'm okay with that. I think part of the point of Christianity is to unsettle us Mm -hmm. and unsettle us from that, which is comfortable uh, in our world. So I I have space for that, but you have to (laughs) proceed with caution on those Mm -hmm. sorts of things. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, All right. Well, speaking of proceeding with caution on difficult subjects, there is this idea of a ban in Joshua. And we, I mean, we see it elsewhere in the Pentateuch, but in Joshua explicitly, we really get this idea that when the Israelites are going in and taking over these towns and taking over these people in the common English Bible, the translation is they're supposed to utterly destroy the people. Um, Ryan, tell us a little bit about that kind of what, how you interpret those texts, what are, what's going, well, first what's going on there 
in the text as it's written in the Hebrew and kind of um, the understanding of what a ban was. But then also, mm-hmm. how can we as uh, modern contemporary Christians interpret that uh, and not just mm-hmm. dismiss it? You know, not just say, well, that was the God of the Old Testament, you mm-hmm. know, but but actually kind of integrate it and make sense of what's happening there. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, I think, one of the hardest topics to wrestle with in all of the book of Joshua is mm-hmm. the presence of violence uh, really symbolized through this idea of a, of a, of a, to utterly destroy these people. And it's not just violence, but the violence seems to be somehow connected to God and to mm-hmm. God's command. And it's just, it's incredibly difficult to unpack. So just a, a couple points of orientation, the, the Hebrew word that gets translated utterly destroyed. That verb is haram. And you know that verb already because you you know the word harem. A harem refers to the uh, group of women that are associated with a sultan or a king. Mm. And it essentially means do not touch or do not approach. And so I think utterly destroy shades, that translation shades the term in a particularly militarized fashion, which makes sense in, for the con. Quest. But I think another way to understand the term is that this stuff, all that's labeled harem, is is things you're, that you're supposed to be supposed to keep away from. It's a way of saying that everything in this place is, should be devoted to the Lord. You could kind of think of it as like a, t- a type of burnt offering. Yeah, like all of this stuff is not for you to keep. You don't go into the land and conquer the people so that you get rich off their gold or so that you can take slaves or things like that. All of it is the Lord's. It's not yours to mm-hmm. keep. And so I think that's part of the terminology is to say all of this you're supposed to keep away from. Now, of course, that involves violence, and there's a lot of death in killing in Joshua, which is really hard ethically mm-hmm. to swallow. And the book of Joshua has been appropriated uh, by Christians, whether mm-hmm. in the Crusades or in the settling of North America, as a mandate to push out other people and to conquer other people in the manner and model of the book of Joshua. And I think mm-hmm. we have we need to have space to name that sort of usage in Christian history, but also to have some place to, to have a response back to it mm-hmm. about why that's not a appropriate and effective usage of this text. Yeah. Why do you think God would want them to destroy everything. Do you think there's a ritual reason behind it or an obedience reason behind it or something operating on that level? Well, one thought is that the point of destroying all of it is so that you're not influenced by it. So the, the, with the goal being to keep the Israelites focused solely on Yahweh, the thought would be that, well, if you got mixed up with the culture and the religion of this people, Maybe the hearts of the Israelites would sway. Maybe they would actually start following Canaanite gods and Canaanite religion. So in one way, it might be designed to try to to preserve or protect the people from straying uh, theologically Mm -hmm. or straying in terms of their actions. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that's too far of a stretch because, you know, flashing forward a little bit, we can see later in um, some of the kings, like think about King Solomon. So he's Mm -hmm. built um, altars to other religions. um, And, you know, we see kind of that was really the start of Israel's downfall. So, I mean, maybe that wasn't totally off base here to kind of stress the importance of uh, making sure that this is God's land and that we um, stick to that. Mm-hmm. 
You know, and that's right. And the reason I think that Solomon has all of those, you know, kind of problems with the altars and things like that is that in order to form political alliances uh, to, to kind of prop up his own prestige as king, Solomon marries hundreds of mm-hmm. foreign women. Right, it's not right. really sexual indiscretion. I think Solomon's kind of taken that way. But really, these were kind of political alliances. But the re- what happens then is Solomon, in order to preserve these political alliances, he also makes space for the gods that go along with those alliances. Mm-hmm. And that's the downfall for Solomon. It's not the women per se. It's the it's what comes along with this willingness to accommodate uh, and, and to bring into Israel the gods of these other places. Mm-hmm. So as we were talking about the subtext of the exile, kind of this idea of, you know, the people in the story are not the people receiving the text. Is there any merit to the idea that the harshness of the ban is a retrojective harshness? Like we know that they didn't go in there and just wipe out all these people, right? It's a narrative tool being used that shouldn't be taken literally. Would you, do you think that's worthwhile? Is that a helpful line of discussion at all? No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it, it is true even just if you keep reading into the book of Judges. The first part of Joshua says the Israelites completely conquered all of the land, all of the cities. And then by the time you get to the beginning of Judges, you realize, oh, no, they didn't. There are all of these Canaanites in the land. In fact, the whole drama of Judges presupposes that they didn't fully conquer the land. So even yeah. from a canonical perspective, uh, it's really clear that the Israelites, that the destruction was not nearly as total uh, as the text describes. And, and the same is true archaeologically, that uh, of the 31 cities said to be destroyed by the Israelites at this time, um, only two show destruction at the right time in the right place in terms of the archaeological record. So it just seems to be that that in terms of the material culture, what we find in the in the dirt this full expression of the conquest never actually happened this way. It, it's certainly, a, uh, to say it's a bit exaggerated would be an understatement. <laughs> yeah, this is one of those moments where I wish the Wesleyan quadrilateral included archaeology. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right, yeah. Because you could just be like, <laughs> no, we just yeah. know it didn't yeah. happen this yeah. way, guys. Like, let's just yeah, all calm right. down. Thanks so much for joining us this week and being on this journey with us. I really appreciated Ryan's suggestion that the reality of the people in the text is not the same as the reality or the story of the people who received the text. This echoes what our senior pastor, McGray de Vega, said in his sermon this past Sunday. There's a story within a story when we read the Bible. There is more going on than the literal text on the page. And if that makes you uncomfortable to think about, that's okay. Because I agree with Ryan that a well-practiced and engaged Christian faith should be unsettling. But you're not in this alone. There are groups both in person and online that you can join to talk about your questions with other people. As I said last week, we are okay with your questions, and we believe that God is okay with your questions too. So if you haven't joined the Facebook group yet, go search for The Bible Project 2020 on Facebook, or visit BibleProject2020.com for other ways to get involved. And be sure to rate and review the podcast in Apple Podcasts so that more people can join us on this journey that is still just beginning. I'm Matt Hotho. See you next week. <laughs>